Is this Crazy Deb? <laughs> this is Crazy Deb. What's going on, my fellow Scorpio? Well, you know, in lockdown, and I'm in Mexico, and seems like we got another three or four weeks to go before we're let out of the house. When we were texting, you seemed surprised that I read your book. Am I not your target demo? Well, I would like to say you are, but uh, probably not. Um, I'm I'm not certain your age. I'm thinking 30, late 30s, maybe 40. I I don't know. And um, NYPD, I I was a little surprised, but thrilled to say the <laughs> least. Very very happy. Okay, let's get to it. If I told 100 people that a former correction officer and hairdresser is writing a book, I'm sure that 99% of them would have thought you'd be writing a book based on your days as a correction officer, but no, on hairdressing. But I'm glad you did because, Debbie, I mean this. Five stars on Goodreads. I absolutely loved your book. Tell everyone about the book I just read and give a brief description on it, please. Well, I started – I, I went to New York right after 9-11, and I worked, um, I worked at Ground Zero helping the firefighters, um, you know, you know how it was when everybody was going and trying to help. I actually did massage therapy um, for the firefighters, and when I got back to Michigan, I was not ready to move forward, and I started watching everything I could get my hands on about Afghanistan, and I had the opportunity to go to Afghanistan with also a disaster relief team, but I was absolutely useless because they were all medical, (laughs) and I'm a hairdresser. They had me doing laundry and, like, making signs for people's doors. I was really, really useless. And so I snuck off shopping a lot, but um, I wound up doing hair when I was, um, when they found out that there was a hairdresser in in the country, they were thrilled. And I brought my scissors and a cape with me. And um, I, I wound up being so busy because all the reporters and every TV station was there, missionaries that had been driving the Kyber Pass for you know, 12 hours to get foils, everybody wanted their hair done. Kind of like now, how everybody <laughs> wants their hair done. And, you know, you're doing like underground hairdressing or, you know, it's it feels like you're doing like a drug deal sometimes. It's like people are trying to get me to do their hair like it's crazy so yeah so that was it and I started doing hair but what I didn't understand was why nobody was doing why there was a a problem and why I was in such high demand and so I started looking uh into the salons there realized that they had all gone underground because it it become illegal to even wear makeup or fingernail polish, get your hair done, that sort of stuff. But as hair prevails, um, people were doing underground hair salons, and um, but they had not they had not had a lot of formal training by this time because there had been war for so long. And so I was in Afghanistan, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to come back and I think I'm going to put a school in. 
that's what I did. And now you grew up in Holland, Michigan. Normal childhood? Everything was just a normal growing up kid? I was a normal kid growing up. I was always a little on the eccentric side <laughs> or maybe creative. I'm going to call it creative. I was always creative and I was always an entrepreneur. Like I was selling something to somebody or making something. I was that kid, right? Like I didn't sit still that long. Well, you know, you're you're a Scorpio. <laughs> Come on. You don't even need to ask me these questions, do you? You know exactly where my how my head was thinking. It's like, I think I can fix this. And you know what? It was it's it's that drive, that curiosity cuz going to the Scorpio nature, we have this curiosity for different cultures, different people, how people are thinking, how people are doing. And and we jump in and it's it's all or nothing. And that's what I did. I jumped in. Now, besides, your, you know, you say you're curious, your different careers and stuff. Was writing always something you enjoyed? Was it always back in your head? Maybe you wanted to write a book or were you always a big writer or no? You know what? I was always a big writer, but I never, ever dreamed I would write a book. I always thought the the. The big day for me, I love I love going to bookstores and airports because I love to fly. Mm -hmm. And so my big tradition is every time I'd go to an airport, I'd go to the bookstore, I'd buy a book, and that would be my travel companion on the flight. And so I always thought, how cool would that be to see your book in an airport? And But that was as far as I took it. But I wrote all the time. I wrote a lot of sketches and a lot of little one-act plays. But I never went down the path uh, of actually writing a book. But I, when I was in Afghanistan, because it was everybody was kind of curious. They thought I was CIA or something. <laughs> because why would a hairdress? What are you doing? You know, because everybody's there. You know, they have there's like mercenaries. There's every kind of character, good, bad ugly, everything you can imagine, but there wasn't really hairdressers there, but I mean, everything else. And, you know, people were smuggling in alcohol and, you know, they were, you, everybody was creating businesses from the ground up, but there wasn't very many hairdressers. And so when I said, what, you know, what do you do in Afghanistan? I said, well, I'm, I'm a hairdresser. And it was like, okay, perfect cover. Perfect cover. <laughs> and so because everybody did go through the beauty shop, right? Like all the um I had I had em embassy people, UN, I did have everybody go through. And so the beauty shop kind of was like a United Nations of relief workers and and everybody who was doing something, uh, reporters, I, it was it was really, really interesting to just look out to see who was in your salon. And I, I, I we didn't mention so, yet, but the uh, Kabul Beauty School, an American woman goes behind the veil. I have to ask you this because you pushed and pleaded to go to Afghanistan. It wasn't like, hey, you're up next. You're going here. You wanted to go there. What was your initial reaction, Michigan girl landing in Afghanistan? Well, you know, it was really weird when you land. Um there was uh, like all the bombed out 
planes and shot up planes. So you're you're landing, and the first thing you see is war zone paraphernalia, and you're thinking this can't be possible. And then when you get in the car and you're driving, it looked like you had just gone back about two thousand years. It just did not seem possible that this was now. And um, but what I found was the hospitality and the generosity of the Afghans. It's impossible to go to Afghanistan and not fall in love with the people and the culture. And I mean, yeah, it was a war zone. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on there and a lot of tribal issues. And, you know, it's a tribal culture, but that you will never meet uh, the most resilient and compassionate and wonderful people. And it was that that draws you in, sucks you in. And literally it's hard to get out of it because you don't want to leave. I mean, it's hard when you're there because, you know, you don't have water. Sometimes you don't have electricity and, you know, things are tough, but there's something so satisfying you could do more with your life and 24 hours you could help and make a difference in more people's lives and 24 hours there than what you could do in a lifetime here now you and so i think sorry no i just think that was what was so my driving force now you initially went there just looking to help. You you didn't your intention wasn't like, okay, I'm heading to Afghanistan to open up a salon. You wanted to go there just to help any way possible, correct? Right. Originally, the when I first went there, I went with the team. And then I was there for a month and I knew that I knew I needed to come back, but I knew that the team was probably going to say, well, you know, maybe not with us. Because I, again, was useless. And so I knew that if I was going to go back, I had to go back on my own. I knew that I had to figure it out. And I knew that I was going to go back. And I knew it was going to be hairdressing. And I knew I was going to put a school in. I knew that. And I just had to figure out, put all those pieces together, which was tricky. Yeah. How does that process happen? Not just open up in a store in Afghanistan because you're a woman but an American woman. So how did that whole process even happen, the difficulties? Well, you know, you you do have to work within. I worked within the women's ministry uh, so that uh, women could have a protected area uh, to, to, to go to school. And, you know, uh, we, there was a, a guy, an Afghan, an Afghan-Australian, that did a lot of the in-between stuff and, you know, you, you, you can't do it on your own. You have to have people help you. It's impossible. It's too big and it's too complicated and you don't know the language. Now, this is a silly question because I've been to a lot of Muslim countries and most, if not all, of the women there are covered up. Were you surprised at the amount of Afghan women that wanted just to be made up with makeup and haircuts and look beautiful? Did that surprise you? 
you know what? It, it did a little bit because I wasn't quite familiar with the culture of basically how made up they are under the burqa. And in Central uh, Asia, like Afghanistan and Pakistan, India, and, you know, the Arab con- countries, the women, whether they are uh, veiled or covered or not, they are definitely, um, they, thought, they thought us American women were really plain. <laughs> and I always wore quite a bit of makeup, right? And But it was like, I was like frumpy compared to them. I mean, they had eyelashes on and I mean, the whole the whole bit, they were dialed up under there. And so I thought, I like that. And so, so I was a little surprised, but um, it was really interesting. Now, you developed some special friendships there. What's the difference between having friends there and over here in the States? What's the biggest difference? I think that, okay, so I could go to an, an Afghan that's in the States. It doesn't matter. They're Afghan. I could, I could say I've got a flight coming in at two o'clock in the morning, and it would not matter. They would come and get me. They'd bring me to their house, and they would have a full-blown meal <laughs> set up for me. Like I'm talking like seven courses at three o'clock in the morning. The the hospitality is past anything you can even wrap your head around. It is the hospitality is amazing. I mean they will when you're a when you're a friend, they will die for you. I mean they really they really take on the friendship to a different level. You were living there and coming back home. You mentioned you were there for a month. How many times and what was the frequency of the trips from Afghanistan back to Michigan? Well, in the beginning, I went for a month and then I came back and I had to gather, you know, I had to try to figure out how am I, how do I get stuff? How do I, how do I do this? I'm a hairdresser in Michigan that has not, I was so clueless, really. (laughs) And, um. So I, after I, I had to get all my stuff together. I had to get all the products. I had to get the shipping containers over. I had to get salon stations, all that stuff. Um, I needed money. I needed to raise money. I needed to do everything. Uh, there needed to be, I, uh, I partnered up with um, a woman that was working and had been working with L'Oreal and I had been working with, Paul Mitchell and uh, you know we just had I, w- I went back just a couple times I went back uh, I must have gone back in February uh, but then I I knew that I couldn't keep coming and going because first of all it was too expensive mm-hmm. and I decided that this was it and after after the second time that I went, I, I, I decided that I was going to go and I was going to stay. Because there's no way you could be running. You couldn't have people coming and going 
uh, trainers and stuff like that. It was just too expensive. And, and realizing that it seemed to be really easy to get stuff, but it was really tough to get money. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was. I mean, I had shipping containers. You know, Paul Mitchell was so generous and, um, you know, uh, all, all the all the beauty salons, I mean, all the companies, they were very, very generous. But it was raising the money was the tricky part. So and then when you rent anything, um, I had some issues with the uh, the women's ministry and they like barred me from there because they decided they wanted to put their own school in. Mm -hmm. So um, that that meant that I had to rent and renting, you have to pay a year's rent up front and rent was not cheap. I mean, you would get a bombed out building and you were paying, you know, New York prices. It was very expensive. So when did the uh, so, when did the beauty school officially open? Uh, two thousand two. And I know you just mentioned the rent, but what other hurdles? Oh, two thousand three. It opened in two thousand three. Sorry. And now, what other hurdles did you face besides the rent? Was it a language? Maybe the men there clientele. What other hurdles did you face opening up the school? You know, um, I think you know the language barrier was tough in the beginning. Um, the because it was there was no real order on how things should be done, so everything was it was always tomorrow, 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 <laughs> and um, you know, so you never had exact ideas. Everybody worked in their own, you know, their own pace, and that was tough, and. You, you know, Afghanistan could make you crazy that way because it was, um, you, you know, nobody was on time and you just had the bureaucracy was very young, right? They didn't, it hasn't, had not been this government for very long and it was just all new. Everything was new and all these, and so it was really tricky. Uh, to deal with that. And then, you know, as as a woman, I'm trying to, you know, boss the men around, right? Because I need things done mm -hmm. and needed it done now, right? And it's like that I had to be careful because it's like I wanted, they, you know what? They don't think of uh, us foreign women as like women. We're like man women, right? <laughs> like we're a whole different genders so the the boundaries that i had were way different than the the rules that the afghan women had i didn't have those same rules so i could i could operate like a woman but yet they weren't surprised because they thought we acted like men because we took charge we did things you know um so so but finding those i know that i stepped on you know, some real cultural faux pas, um, you know, looking back, I'm sure that I must have, but, um, you know, just trying to get something done and you just can't, you, there's like two, two 
layers of the story going at the same time. The, the one that's really happening and the one that they're telling you that's happening. And so trying to decipher between all of that was tricky. The whole, it was tricky. And then, you know, and we don't have electricity. I mean, that was really hard. And we, <laughs> you know, and, and um, you know, trying to get anything there. I, I needed to, in order to have a class, I needed to have mannequin heads. I needed 10 mannequin heads. There's no mannequin heads there. I had to fly to Dubai to get everything. So, I mean, hair color. If I didn't have it, I had to, you know, try to procure it. And just all the little things that are so easy that you just go to the store and you get or you order, can't get it. Now you meant like you mentioned a few of the fights you had there, and you had a lot of wacky stories there, and a, a lot of showdowns. And I know you can't fight every single day, but I'm sure you wanted to. What made you pick and choose what was worth fighting for? Not even with the mannequin heads, but even with the women there defending people. Stories with you with guns. What made you pick and choose your fights? Well, you know what I I don't know if I, honestly I probably don't know if I was picking and choosing my fights wisely. Um, <laughs> You just, you know, you're living in, it was almost like a vortex, right? And you're living in this world where everybody has a gun. And you don't know the bad guys from the good guys. You don't know who's Taliban and who's not. You don't know, you don't know anything, right? You're just hoping for the best and you're hoping that, people are the best that it was really when the bad guys would hurt my girls or the husbands I mean I could not I could do nothing about the husbands that was the hard part because I could not get involved in a family thing because that wasn't my place and that could cause more trouble but I would get so annoyed when these literal criminals were just running the show and I had neighbors. They were bad guys, like literally bad guys. They had, you know, were kidnapping people. They were stealing vegetables from the vendors and then they beat up my guard. And that was it. That was when Annie got her gun (laughs) and I was going to, break down but I had like pink fluffy slippers on I was so mad I thought you know what and I just I, you know it was a it was it was I it was foolish and uh I could have really gotten hurt and I didn't thank God um my son my son was in Afghanistan with me and we reminisce and when we say we have war stories we really have war stories and he says, you know, we're we're both lucky to be alive. And I'm thinking, yeah, you know, we were. We took a few risks that may not have been good. And But I tell you, I would just get so I, – I was so angry. And I literally brought them – I made the police arrest them. I was going to arrest – they had to be arrested. And, you know, they just couldn't get, a, get away with – hurting the women, beating up people and, you know, kidnapping people. They couldn't, couldn't stand it. And I thought, and they're my neighbors. 
and um, they they just let them go. Like they said, you know, sorry, lady, but these these bad guys are bigger than us, Ugh. and yeah. And so when I left the police station, and I had to give them a ride home. I that love I love that thing. part of the book. Oh, goodness. Uh, so I got the, but before I left the compound, and so all the peacekeepers were there, right? And so, so there was a, it was a huge compound and there was tanks, right? And they were all like these, 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 these tanks and they were our guys or they're the peacekeepers. And so I went up and I think the guy was Dutch or something. And I says, Hey, can you, can you do something about this? You know, I told him my story and he says, well, you know, we're peacekeepers. I don't, there's really not much we can do. I says, can you bring your tanks and just point them at that house? (laughs) And so, because there's no street, there's no road signs. So I drew a map and I said, and this is my house had I had camels on my wall. This is my house and the one next door are the bad guys. So, you know, I've I was friends with the vice president at that time. And, you know, they're saying, you know, what well, Debbie, you better stay in your compound because I think you've really pissed off, you know, some really bad people. And so the next thing I know, the guard comes and he says, um, I think the door's for you. And so I go outside, and they had surrounded the house with these tanks. And I I thought, good. I knocked on the door, and I just basically said, don't F with us anymore. And I said, and I pointed to the tanks that were all pointed to his door. <laughs> so, and did, I know. did the problems I, end right there? What? Did the problems end right there then, I'm assuming? It did. Absolutely. (laughs) Yep. Yep. It was done. And, you know, the thing is, is I think about three or four weeks later, I can't remember. I heard, I, I, there was somebody in the house that was watching like a shoot 'em up TV and I could hear these guns in the background. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, though, that sounds really close. And it didn't sound like TV. And I looked outside my window and I could look into their courtyard and somebody was raiding that house. And the next thing they were all taken out. You uh, so. you, you have to keep in mind now that my last three uh, interviews was a CIA agent, a UFC fighter and a boxer. So the fact that you have me asking the next question just shows what a great book this was. Can you please explain the weddings there in Afghanistan and more importantly, the makeup that you did for them? Because I read this chapter in amazement, and I've traveled all over, and I never knew with the makeups and the weddings. Can you explain it? Because this was my favorite part of the book. Which what part? What what part of the wedding? You mean like? Well, both um, just the makeup, the the way they get the makeup done, and then like the two rooms that just blew my mind, and how they danced and everything. Oh, those separate weddings. Yeah. Well, you know, so the the first thing you you need to be hairless. So, like, that's the first thing that happens is you must be hairless. And so that's that's the big thing. Everything everything is gone. And then the makeup is 
unbelievable and sparkly and glittery and the hair is big. And then they, you go and uh, there is a, uh, a big wedding hall and there is a curtain down the middle of it. And the men are on one side and the women are on the other side and the groom, uh, the some of the weddings that I went to, the groom actually is allowed into the girl's side. But, oh, it's two separate parties. Absolutely. And they're just, it's crazy. And they're, they're dancing. They're having so much fun. But separate parties. And I think that's kind of, in a lot of areas, is pretty common. You really embraced the culture there, which I loved. I have to ask you, why didn't you learn the language? I w- it was blowing my mind, Deb. I did, I did. By the time I left, I had it. I had it. Okay, because I was, I, I was doing the book. I'm like, Debbie, you're so smart. You do everything. Why are you not learning the language? I was getting mad at you. <laughs> well, you know, I, I ha, I did actually have to learn. I mean, I, it was really tricky because there was no books, right? There was nothing to study, and so I wound up. There was some missionaries that were teaching the language and so I literally had to hunker down and uh, I learned the language and I probably was I probably understood 70% and still probably only spoke 50% but I'm I'm in this beauty shop and I, you know I have the same thing here my Spanish is terrible and I'm in Mexico but you know it's I have to, I do, I can do hair talk, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can do hair talk all day long. And, you know, I mean, I have a, a salon full of Mexican, uh, you know, Mexican girls. And, you know, I can communicate with them, but I can't, like, buy a vegetable. Like, it's just over. And it's like, so I, I did get it. I got the language. And you know what? The sad part is I lost it. Like I, mm-hmm. it, if you don't use it, man, it is gone. And when I came to Mexico, I found myself making a sentence of English, Spanish, and Dari, <laughs> like all in one thing. And it's like I couldn't get the Spanish in my head because the Dari was there. I don't know. I'm I'm not trilingual. It seems. When running the beauty parlor, the beauty school there, what was your typical re- re- uh, routine there, like your daily day activities? Give me like a normal day there. You know, I'd get up early, have my tea, and then I'd get to the salon, have some more tea. And, um, you know, when we were, when, you know, often like I was, if I was teaching in the school, you know, it was just full day, full out teaching all day and but in the salon, it was uh, it's pretty casual, right? Because we'd have appointments because it was on a compound, right? So everybody would have to go through the security guard in order to get in. And, um, you know, it, was, it literally was the same as any beauty shop uh, in the States or anywhere in the world. It's like like all those all the cultural differences and all the differences just disappeared. Now you just got a bunch of women and we're all, <laughs> we trash talk the men. That was the common thing. Like, and that is, 
I mean, my girls, they were sometimes had the worst mouths, but they would trash talk the men and my customers, everybody, you know, that's just what beauty shops, we just have fun, right? Like they laugh and cut up and it's fun. Now, speaking of you girls, you got so close to them. Did you have problems, I guess, because I did as a reader, not knowing what happens to them. Sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. Unfortunately, sometimes they come to work sad. Did you have a difficult time dealing with them just like leaving you or going away? I did. I had, you know, I had my hardest. I struggled with the abuse, right? Like I struggled with the... knowing that they were having physical abuse from their husband or whatever. Um, I struggled with um, some of the young ones who were being taken advantage of by men prostituting them. And yeah, it was, it was, it was uh, almost more than you can manage, right? Because there was a part of you that wanted to distance yourself because it hurt over and over and over again. And you were somewhat, you could do only what you could do. And then you were helpless. And that was tough. Now, obviously you weren't becoming wealthy doing this. How were you making a living and surviving there? That, that really, you didn't get into that much in the book. How were you, how were you getting by? Well, um, I had sold my house, and so I had a little bit, not a very little bit of money that I had from the house. And, um, you know, I I did hair. So, and I lived at the beauty shop. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, this, this, everything was all in one compound. We had the school, the salon. The salon would ha- be some days the uh, beauty school the the beauty school would be other days, um, and then I had uh, uh, people rented rooms. And you you, so, men- you mentioned earlier, uh, Deb, your son came, and I, I just shows like what a good parent you are because he came there and he wanted to help. He wanted to help that girl Ali. Has he been back there? And what did he think of Afghanistan? You know what he. he- he loved it. He he loved it, and he loved it and hated it kind of all at the same time because he was 19, and he was just – he was a hot mess, right? And um, the the part that I can talk about my, – my publishers didn't want me to put this in the book, and so I didn't. But the uh, – Zach had been um, on drugs. Mm-hmm. And my son, Noah, had, uh, you know, I talked to him and he says, you know, mom, we found needles in Zach's backpack. I says, okay. And I said, um, I called my girlfriend. I says, will you take Zach to the post office and get him a passport? And I brought his butt right to Afghanistan because the thing is, is I thought I had more control there mm-hmm. because, you know, you're under lock and key. I mean, you, you, you're not roaming the streets in Afghanistan because somebody will get you. And so, you know, I had kind of the fear of the Taliban getting him or uh, I could I could keep I could keep control over him. And he basically got his act cleaned up, 
which is fantastic. And, you know, it was really a tough love, but bringing my son who had problem with drugs to the heroin capital of the world, (laughs) you know, was possibly, but you know what? It it worked. Uh, Thank God. But he, um, he loved it. He thinks that it has made him into the person he is today in a good way. He, um, the culture he embraced, uh, he, he leads with his heart. And so he was like me, it was hard for him. Like, how can I, how can I save? He wanted to save everybody. That's the thing is you can't, the, the getting past the wanting to save everybody, which you can't. And you, that is, you had to like realize that's not your job. And that was tough though, because you get so emotionally, um, invested in the people and just this some of the suffering was just past anything you could even comprehend and it literally kept you from sleeping at night a side track uh track question because you mentioned saving and helping are there any charities or anything you recommend for people who want to help foundations or anything to help afghanistan you know my favorite one and uh is parsa they work with uh, um, like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, and th- I know I'm I'm I know that the money goes directly to the projects that they are working in. And they're such a they're they have done so much uh, with the country, and they have been there a very 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 long time and are still doing really good work with the kids and stuff like that. So, yeah, Parsa is probably my number one. You went there not as a tourist. You went there to help. Then you lived there. You made it your home. Is there any hope for Afghanistan? Because, you know, forget about the media portrays because I go to a lot of places that the media is like, you're going to get kidnapped. They hate Americans, blah, blah, blah. Is there hope for Afghanistan? You know what? I think Afghanistan is... uh, a very resilient nation. I think it's going to go through some, you know, it's a tribal nation. You know, there's a lot of distrust with, you know, their governments and that sort of thing. But I, I, I have to, I have to believe that there's hope for Afghanistan. I have to believe that there's a future for it because it's such a beautiful nation with the most amazing people on the earth. I hope one day you can go to Afghanistan. I'm trying to. I'm I, well. I he'll be listening to this because I sent him. My boss is from Afghanistan, and I've been trying to for him to organize something where I go out there. He says hopefully soon I can uh, make the trek out there. I'm I'm dying to go there and just see everything about it. Forget the food and everything. Every you want to know how you know it's a great place because every single person that mentions it mentions the people. They don't mention anything else but the people. You're going to fall in love with the people. And if you walk down the street, they're going to grab you, come have tea. They're going to be fascinated by you. And just they just want to love and be like, hey, we're not the stigma that we are on TV. It, that's exactly true. It is so true. They, you know, they call it the, the web, right? They say it's like a spider's web. And once you get caught in the web, you can never get out <laughs> because it, it just sucks you in like that. Like my heart aches still for Afghanistan. Um, I will, I feel like I left a 
part of me there. And you know, like, I probably don't go a day without missing it. It's, 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 it is such a captivating culture. It's so rich in history. It's so rich in their, their culture and their people and the, and just learning about the different tribes and who does this and that. It is, it's so spectacular. You can never know everything. You can never know enough. And then, you know, if you can get out into the provinces, it's just so beautiful. I brought my son to see the, where the Bamyan uh, Buddhas were, the, the largest Buddhas, I think, in the world that the Taliban blew up before 9-11. And, you know, but it was such a gorgeous area. I'm so thankful that I was able to share that with my son. Oh, that's amazing. Now, your fascinating book chronicles your time there from like 2001 or two to 2006. And you really put yourself out there in the book. You admitted your flaws, you know, problems with your marriage, everything. Was this therapeutic for you? And how was the process writing a book like this? Because it covered so many avenues. Well, you know, I had journaled the whole time just to keep my own piece of my, I mean, it was, it was, it was tough, right? You see a lot of stuff that you sh- is heartbreaking. And so for me, I had to journal everything down. I wrote it all down. And so when it was, I was, with the book I wanted to write was cause I was, I married an Afghan and he was crazy. Um, he was, he was like Fred Flintstone with a rocket launcher and he was insane. He was so funny. And, you know, and he was, he was a really funny person. I didn't work out for us, but it was, he, and so constantly I had a coffee house there too. Right. Okay. And so I, I, I was in the coffee house. And just because there was, I needed a place that I could go that wasn't a bar. And so I, I, and I needed some coffee other than Nescafe. So I, I, I opened a coffee house and I'd call him. I'd say, I'm closing the coffee house now. I'd be about like nine at night. I says, yeah, can I come home? And he goes, oh, you can't come home yet. There's warlords in our living room. <laughs> <laughs> So that was the book I originally <laughs> thought I would write. There's warlords in my living room. So <laughs> that was so I I I so basically it was just it's kind of my diary. I uh I was just going to ask you cuz you got you got you left a bad marriage here in Michigan and you went out there you're talking about your marriage to Sam. How did that marriage happen because it, I'm telling you, Deb, everything you did in this book blew my mind. But you got married out there. You just obviously did spoiler alert. But how'd that marriage come about? Well, I had uh, friends. Well, you know, we all lived in guest houses, mm-hmm. right? So I had some friends that were that I met there that were living in a guest house. And they, she was Afghan and uh, he was American. And they all – it was really – hard sometimes as a single woman trying to do this whole 
this whole thing. And there's no such thing as dating, right? Mm -hmm. And they kept saying, you need to have an Afghan husband. Everything (laughs) would be so much easier if you had an Afghan husband. I thought, you know what? What the hell? I've had every other kind of husband, so let's just go for Afghan too, right? (laughs) So I kind of was a little bit, and and I think that it was kind of like he thought, well, you know what? We can check out this man-woman is probably what I thought I was because, you know, there's I I wasn't Afghan woman, and so I was I was too forthcoming and blunt, and you know, uh, and and I think he was thinking, well, that was just the way all Americans are. And so I think he was thinking he could advance his career. And I was thinking, oh, and he can help me with the beauty school. So we, it was kind of a convenience thing because it, I, I, I liked him, right? But um, it, you could not date. I mean, it was, it's so, you, you, it's very dangerous to date. Like that just cannot happen. And so we were kind of trying to see each other on the side, but that was, a disaster waiting to happen. Somebody was going to get hurt by that. I like, hope, hurt. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> I hate. I hope I'm not overstepping the line here, but obviously in American culture, it's one wife, one woman. Did you have an issue? Because he had a, another family in Saudi Arabia, and I don't know if you were like, hey, what the hell, I'm here. Why not get married? But did, how'd you deal with that? With this? He had a second marriage. Well, you know, I, I was a little bit led astray on that one because... You know, in in the very beginning, it was like, oh, I had to, you know, come to Afghanistan and my wife can never come to Afghanistan and I can never divorce her, which now I know it really was not led astray. But I just understood that's different culture. Like for him to divorce a wife, even if he will then put shame on her and the children and knowing what I know now, Divorce would have never, it's just not an option. And I think in my head, I wanted to think, oh, that marriage is dissolved and in my head. I I mean, really, I I justified it. Um, and, And I really thought that she knew because, you know, other than basically that I, I assume I knew, I thought she knew. And um, she didn't. And that was, that troubled me. That was, I didn't find that out till the very end. And then he had a child when we were married. <laughs> yeah, oh my goodness. It was so awful. I, you know what, honestly, I'm thinking, what was I thinking? I seriously, I, you, my, my, clean, my uh, cleaning lady, she always made me tea. So every morning she would make me tea and then she would go, I'm going to make you this special chai. I'm like, Oh, I'd really like that special chai. Mm-hmm. And so, so I didn't find out until after I was actually back in the States, she'd been making my chai with opium. <laughs> and so I, come on, no, come on. No, I'm serious. Like she would go, oh, Debbie, do you have a headache? I go, yeah, I have a headache. She goes, I make you this special chai. I'm like, I love that chai. I was serving it in the salon to everybody. I had no idea that she was freaking putting opium in my chai. 
And like, I thought, oh my, I have no aches and pains. Life. You know, it's like, yeah. So I'm thinking the whole marriage, let's just chalk it up to the jive, right? <laughs> Great answer. Hey, as an author now, I personally prefer reading nonfiction books. Um, I know you, you've written both nonfiction and fiction. It's a cliche author question, but I have to ask you, what should you prefer writing? You know what? Um, you know, fiction, nonfiction, you know, can is really all in your stuff, right? Like nonfiction, uh, things get really personal. And sometimes that can... That can be good. That can be bad. But it, it feels it can kind of be it can be uh, weird sometimes. Uh, I like writing. Probably I like I feel most comfortable writing fiction, but I have to live it first. Does that make sense? Of like yeah, if you, I, you need I, a storyline, an idea. Yeah, if I have a if I have a storyline that is going to take place in Oman, which is this, the Zanzibar wife takes place in Oman, I literally will get my storyline together, then I will live that moment. Like I have to live it. I have to see it. I have to smell it. I need to be in that story. Otherwise, it doesn't. I can't find that. So. I think in a sense, I like the nonfiction writing. I like it to feel like that. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't know. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, <laughs> I like, I, I'm not certain, right? Like I, I like the non-hassle of fiction, right? That because makes a lot of sense. You, it does. Yeah. But because once you are in nonfiction, you have boundaries because it's nonfiction. And so you can't, you know, like if something isn't working well in the story, not in fiction, you can say, well, let's, you know, make him older. Yes. Let's make him, doesn't he can be a girl now. It doesn't matter, right? But so you do have way more boundaries. And so you have to find a good way to make a, a nonfiction book read like fiction and fiction reads like nonfiction. Speaking of nonfiction, the one negative I have about it is when the book ends, the story, in fact, doesn't really end. And your book friggin' ended abruptly. And I'm going to quote your book. I actually wrote it down on a post-it. As I write this, in May 2006, both the uh, Kabul Beauty School and the Oasis Salon are closed up tight. And then you mentioned widespread rioting and looting in the city. So what happened in May of 06 that made your, shop, your shops close? Well, I mean, so did you – what – there's there's an – did you have the book with the afterwards? I did not. And I didn't want to Google okay. too much because I wanted to talk to you before I started – oh, so you put more in the afterwards? Yeah, you know what? And I will actually uh, email you the afterwards. It's in some of the books. And some of them it's not, and I don't really know. But uh, there was this horrible rioting, and we did have to shut down. But actually, I didn't. I there was uh, I had to flee the country in um, 2007. Oh, and that was yeah, yeah. Um, there was a plot to kidnap my eldest son Noah, and so my so we had to. Um, we had to leave very, very 
abruptly. And so it was, so I was there until 2007 and it was a very harsh ending. You know what? Speaking of harsh, let me ask you this now. PTSD, it's obviously a serious thing. And many people who are spent time in places of despair and war, they can get it. You had a very abusive relationship, which I love that you were so open about the struggles you had here. And you were also living a difficult life like over there. Did you deal with any of that or maybe did you block any of it out? I No, I did. I did. I struggled with it. Um, I I sat out for about two years from 2007 until I moved to Mexico. And it was, it was really hard. Like I had a hard time with um, like uh, fireworks and, you know, that sort of stuff. I had a hard time with um, feeling like I was going to get lost, uh, like really weird triggers like that. And um, I actually addressed a lot of that in, my I, I wrote another nonfiction book called Margarita Wednesday, and it was it was really tough. And because uh, PTSD is something that you don't really think you have, be, until all of a sudden you are acting, you are having an odd reaction to something that is nothing like a breakdown in the mall or something right it was weird it was very uncomfortable and then you know you know that this is not doesn't feel normal and um I went to a therapist in California and his uh advice to me was I needed to go sit in a field of glowworms yeah serious <laughs> you know what you needed you needed some of that opium tea back in afghanistan that's what you needed <laughs> i know right <laughs> okay deb i've kept you on uh, on the line for 55 minutes but i want to finish up with a few quick hit questions you ready yes first time you saw you someone you saw someone reading your book in public you did what i i was uh, excited weirded out i did nothing i'm like i you like didn't. You didn't approach say, them. You didn't approach them. No, I couldn't. Like I felt really embarrassed, but I was so excited, <laughs> and I wanted to take a picture, but I didn't. That was so weird. When you were in Afghanistan, because you want to say you know, that's me, right? Of course. <laughs> uh, excuse me. I'm the person you're reading. Uh, the first time you were in Afghanistan, what food did you miss the most from Michigan? Hamburgers, pizza. What about where? Where were you the moment when the book blew up? When all of a sudden it was everywhere, it kind of went viral. Where were you when you got that moment? And you're like, "Holy crap, it happened!" Uh, well, it kind of happened when I was in Afghanistan, and I had no idea. Like, I had spotty internet, so, and then uh, it wasn't, and I was on my way to Dubai, and. Uh, my agent emailed me. I was in Dubai. She says, you have to come back because uh, uh, Good Morning America wants to do an interview with you and and your beauty school. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I have no idea. Like, no idea. Not a clue. I did one quick Google search. And is there going to be a movie or was there a movie about this? Or was that in the works? 
there was there was an option at one point and the option is no longer existent and so i don't know i keep thinking that maybe someday there will be i'm keeping my fingers crossed have you kept in touch with any of the women from there not i don't want to know individually but have you kept i hate to say characters but they were characters in the book oh awesome yeah no i've kept in touch with a lot of them um yeah now I mean, I wish that, I mean, I had over 200 students, mm-hmm. right? Of course. So my, the ones that have some English, but yeah, we all, we keep in touch with quite a few. Now you definitely improved the lives of women there. You gave them confidence. You taught them a trade. Uh, you made them more independent. Hopefully if you could have changed one thing you did differently when you were there, what would it be? Maybe not get married. <laughs> Here we go. Three more. During the quarantine, what shows have you been binge watching? Oh, binge watching. Okay, let me think. Um, I binge watch. Oh, you know, I did the Tiger King. Okay, of course. Me too. I I couldn't stop it. I can't believe I did. It's so out of my genre and I couldn't stop it. Okay. I was like a train wreck. I've been watching a lot of stuff on, uh, oh, I... I'm going to, uh, the Mick Mafia. Okay. Is it good? Yes. Wait, is that the McDonald's lottery thing? No, no. This is like a, more of a mafia thing. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't see I didn't see that. How about 90 Day Fiance? Because there's no sports on. So my wife, oh my has, my wife has me watching that. Do you believe it? I love that. <laughs> like, I love them. Like, I can't, I can't stand it. I I know it's awful, isn't it? Dep- it's like, oh my goodness. But all, yes, I love it. All I watch is sports, and my wife is Filipino, and she's like, hey, you, there's a show called 90 Day Fiance, or Before the 90 Days, and there's a Filipino girl who we watch it. I'm like, yeah. The first episode, I'm like, this is horrible, Deb. I get home from work, and I'm like, oh, fine, let's watch another two episodes. It's cringeworthy, and yet I, t- I can't turn it off. Oh, I know, I can't. I, 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 I binge <laughs> watch that one, too. I've been, you know, I've been, I've been making... Uh, mask you know for like our like everybody else i've i borrowed a sewing machine i don't know how to sew which is the tricky part (laughs) and i thought i can figure this out like i'm youtubing right how to use a sewing machine and so and so i've been binge watching stupid tv stupid 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 tv and i can't stop it like it's i'm brainless tv and finally, you're an author now. What book are you reading though, right now? You know, right now I am reading all things about Morocco. Like I'm my my book I'm working on now takes place in Morocco. Mm-hmm. So I, I, my lux I don't have a luxury right now to read things that are like um on my list of like the things I want to read. So I'm reading all things about Morocco, uh, like every bit of research paper, but right. I do. I have been reading, I've been rereading. I love Lisa C and I love, uh, Jamie Ford. Um, uh, Jamie Ford is, uh, um, on the corner of bitter and sweet, which is really a fantastic book. And so I've I started to reread that one. And Lisa C., she has Snowflower and the Secret Fan, China Girls. So I've been rereading a lot of books that, um, you know, I read a long time ago. 
finish up now because Debbie Rodriguez, this was an absolute blast. But I want you to plug the social media, plug the books, and all that good stuff where everyone can find you. Okay, so uh, DebraRodriguez.com, and I'm on Facebook, Deborah Rodriguez, author, and you can find me on Twitter. Um, I believe it's Deb underscore Rod, and Instagram. Just look under Deborah Rodriguez. You can find me there. I'm I'm pretty much. You found me. Of course I did. I fin- I started the book. I'm telling you this, Dad. This is what happened. I'm I'm scrolling. I see the book. I'm like, okay, let me. I'm like, oh, hairdress, uh, uh, not for me. I maybe read, I think I wrote to you after like 40 pages. I'm like, hey, please come on. I was going to email you, find you on Facebook. I don't even have Facebook. I was going to make an account because I wanted to do this so bad. And I'm actually going to check out your net bo- next book. So this was an absolute blast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you. We'll talk after 90 Day Fiance finishes up and we'll do an update, all right? <laughs> okay, we will. Thank you. Deb, see you later. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.